Welcome back to the Silent Battle Podcast. Again, I'm Erica Jackson Honeycutt, and I will be your host for each segment every other Wednesday at 7 p.m. I do want to apologize for this past Wednesday. Um, I was unavailable that Wednesday because I had some medical issues to come up, and so um, therefore I wasn't able to complete the podcast um, this past Wednesday, and so I do want to apologize, but most of the time the podcast will air on Wednesdays, every other Wednesday at 7 p.m. Central Time. This podcast focuses on autoimmune diseases and diseases that are thought to have some type of autoimmune relation. However, I want to open the podcast up to focus on organ transplant as well because oftentimes some autoimmune diseases may lead to transplant like mine did, NSIP, nonspecific interstitial pneumonia. I will have different interviews with different people that want to share their autoimmune disease or transplant story and they will talk about how they manage living with an autoimmune disease or as a transplant patient and give us tips on what may be helpful to you all out there. I also will continue to interview medical professionals such as rheumatologists, pulmonologists, therapists, and transplant doctors. This podcast is a safe space for my listeners while educating them and hopefully you all out there will find a segment that not only educates you but helps you. As I said back in January of last year when I first started the podcast, you out there with autoimmune disease no longer have to feel like you're fighting a silent battle. I get what you're going through, and so many other listeners out there do as well. Lastly, I do want to point out before we get started that I'm not a doctor and I can't give you medical advice. I can only speak on what has helped me. So if you hear something on this channel that you question whether or not it will work for you, jot it down and discuss it with your doctor. I also want to mention if you have any suggestions on topics that you would like for me to talk about or questions or comments, email me at the silent battle 2022 at gmail.com. So now that we have all our housekeeping out the way, let's get started. Today I'm going to share with you my raw and candid lung transplant story. I have I've I have my husband here to help me through it because a lot of the story in the beginning after I first was transplanted is very vague to me because I had to be in an induced coma for 10 days, three days after transplant, because my body started rejecting the lungs. So that's why I say a lot of the story in the beginning, I need Travis's help to, you know, I need him to help me with. So as a lot of you know, I fought the autoimmune disease nonspecific interstitial pneumonia for almost eight years. However, last year, my body took a lot of hits. Um, in February of last year, I caught COVID. Then my best friend, who was my mother, passed away in April. Then in May, we moved from Clarksville, Tennessee, to Murfreesboro, Tennessee, to an apartment. Then we finally found the house we wanted and bought and moved to our new home in Murfreesboro in October of last year. With all that being said, COVID, my mom's passing, and two moves, my lungs and body in general definitely took a hit due to all the stress. And as you all know, autoimmune diseases feed off of stress. Around the last week of September of last year, I started feeling breathless more than usual. I was admitted into Vanderbilt Hospital for a week and was given a lot of antibiotics and diuretics, which stabilized me for a short amount of time. 
The doctors told me that I needed to start thinking seriously about transplant and trying to lose weight. Um, I needed to lose uh, weight for the transplant due to you have to have a certain BMI to qualify. So I was discharged and I went home and I started monitoring everything I put in my mouth at that point and tracking my weight. Around the end of October, I started feeling breathless again. This time more than normal. I began walking less and less and I noticed I was only able to go from the bedroom to the couch and I was barely eating anything because I was getting so breathless I couldn't eat. Um, I, I, was using, I was using 15 to 25 liters of oxygen with sometimes two cannula tubes in my nose. However, I was determined to have Thanksgiving with my family because I just knew if I went into the hospital this time, I would not be coming out anytime soon. So I got through Thanksgiving with my family and I called my doctor on December 1st and she told me that there will be a, a room waiting on me in the emergency room to be admitted. And so on December 1st, I was admitted to the hospital. My doctors went through the routine of giving me antibiotics. Excuse me. They went through the routine of giving me antibiotics and diuretics to try to turn things around. But this time, nothing was working. And I was getting worse and worse. And was soon using 40 liters of oxygen. My doctors came and they talked with me and Travis and they told us basically that my lungs were shutting down and that I, was, I wasn't going to make it much longer on the lungs that, we, that I had and, and, and that we need to talk about my last resort, which was lung transplant. The evaluation process was started soon after that conversation. I had had at least 20 or more bottles of blood drawn and had to, and I, well, I had the necessary scans done also. I had lost all the weight I needed to lose to qualify for transplant except for five pounds. The doctors took my case to the board that approves you to be listed for a transplant. They either approve you or deny you. But because I needed to lose five more pounds, the decision from the board was a soft no at first. But I quickly lost those five pounds within a few days because a lot of my weight was fluid. And once I lost those five pounds, my case went back to the board and I was approved to go on the list. It's so wild to me that once I was approved, two days later, the one of my transplant doctors came to talk to me and Travis to tell us that they think they had found me some lungs and that they were flying out to get them but they felt very confident that they are a perfect match for me. And again, guys, this was only two days later. They couldn't say 100% because the doctors, um, they, they like to look over them when they reach the hospital to make sure they're healthy and they're good to go for transplant before they tell you 100% that the lungs are yours. But as far as what they knew about them, they were going to be a perfect match for me, and thank God, because they were. Um, so on December 21st, I received the most precious gift, two new lungs from a selfless donor that I will always be so thankful for. The surgery went well, 
Then three days later, my body started rejecting the lungs. Travis, can you explain what happened when my body started rejecting the lungs? <clears throat> yeah, uh, at that time, it was a couple days after the transplant, uh, you, you started running a fever of 103, uh, I believe it was 103 and, uh, Fahrenheit, and uh, you just, um, they was putting cooling blankets on you, they couldn't get your temperature to break, they talked to me uh, saying that your body was rejected, the doctors talked to me, discussing that your, your body was rejecting the Lou lungs, and they had some, some options available, uh, but it was, it was pretty severe. Uh, they did discuss using ECMO and uh, putting a trach in you uh, in order to help uh, allow your lungs to have a rest. And after signing all the paperwork for you, uh, they did do ECMO, which if you don't know what ECMO is, it's where it can either uh, control the pulls the oxygen out of the body you have two tubes one in your neck one in your growing area mm -hmm. the blood is pumped through the tube oxygenated and put back in your body they can use that for your lungs they can use that for your heart or for both if need be but they only needed it for your lungs they did plasma infusions uh, it was five treatments each treatment was three hours uh, there were three hours each day uh, around evening time, probably around four or five o'clock, they did them, and the plasma infusions or treatments were to remove your old plasma, which removed your antibodies that was rejecting your new lungs, and put in new plasma. And, uh, and I wasn't awake for any of this. No, no, she was she was asleep for everything. She was in a medically induced coma, and. Uh, during ECMO, they have a nurse with her 24-7 because they can't leave the room. Because uh, if that tube comes out, she could bleed to death within a matter of minutes. And uh, they had her restrained to keep her from pulling the tubes out on accident uh, while she was in a coma. And uh, the, the, the fever broke after a few days. They got the temperature to drop. They kept her on ECMO, I think, for a period of about seven seven days maybe seven to ten days roughly and uh when she came off ecmo she was still on the ventilator uh because they had to wean her off ecmo first then they could uh do the you know stitch up these the points where the tubes were installed they stitched those up and then they had you on a ventilator they weaned you off the ventilator and that took a little bit of time and once they got you off the ventilator then they was able to uh kind of get you a little more co coherent you know they they put the trach in and in order to remove the drain tube or the the tube that went into your mouth down into your throat and all that they had to remove that as well so that's why they did the trach so you wouldn't be gagging on that while you could talk or to allow you to talk and uh, trachs aren't like they used to be uh, I know it sounds scary um, but trachs are, they actually have a speaking valve that goes over them. It's a one-way valve now, so it's actually your voice. It's not that little little speaker that you put up to your, your vocal cords that makes you sound like a robot. It's not like that anymore. It's actually your voice. It's just a one-way valve that allows you to talk out of your mouth. Um, 
but they put they had the the trach in and they was able to remove the other tube that was in your mouth so it allowed you to not have anything in there you still had a feeding tube in your nose which stayed in there for quite a while yeah um and i don't believe there was any other tubes as far as that goes um but you you had a lot of things going on in the back burner that you didn't know i mean i know the doctors would have me you know uh in their meetings you know in the when they come around and do the walkthrough just to kind of allow me to hear what's going on and and discuss what i've seen and uh, just kind of be a part of the whole process because it was a lot and uh being the only one there with you at the time it was it was tough to take all that in, seeing you hooked up to all that equipment. I'd never seen one person hooked up to so many different things. Uh, I I can't even begin to explain it, how much stuff there was connected to you, but they knew what they were doing. Vanderbilt was on top of it 100%. They never let anything, if they seen the slightest decline in anything, they was on top of it. And uh, I, I, I cannot thank them enough for the doctors, uh, the nurses that were all there, the whole staff. They were just amazing as far as what they did. Yes, they were. And, I mean, it, I mean there, it's a lot of s smart people, smart doctors, um, smart nurses. Not just smart, but just caring. Caring, yes. Caring. Caring. They. So compassionate yeah. about, you know, you, they treat you like that you're one of their family members yeah. um, and I you know I I can't thank them enough for everything that they did for Travis and myself um, when we were there um, I was released from the hospital uh, from Vanderbilt at the end of January and then um, went to select rehabilitation hospital which is also um, in Nashville uh, and that was just to do some continued inpatient uh, rehab to try to, um, you know, just continue to to work on my balance and walking again. Um, and then I was there until February the 14th. And then after, we stayed in an apartment near Vanderbilt, which is required by the transplant team. If you live outside of 30 mile, a 30 mile radius to the hospital, um, you have to have um, lodging yeah, yeah lodging um and which is it is helpful because yeah. it's convenient because you do have a lot of doctor's appointments rehab and all that and it didn't uh it did help a lot so we wouldn't have to keep driving back and forth right because that's what i was going to say it's a requirement due to them having to monitor you every week um and the fact that even though you get out of inpatient rehab you start going to outpatient rehab every week which is like three times a week so it's a it's a lot, um, and then I was released to go home here in Murfreesboro on March 15th, but I still have to continue rehab. So, so far, I'm doing good. Recovering is just, it's a process. Um, after surgery, I couldn't walk, and that was one of the scariest things for me, is my legs felt like tree trunks, and I just, I couldn't raise them, I couldn't walk, I couldn't moved by myself after surgery and i mean it was just so scary for me travis did you want to say something yeah uh with that being said uh her surgery was uh not the normal uh 
it, she had some she had difficulties as opposed to some of the other uh, lung transplants so don't don't take this as that every surgery is this bad because not every one of them is like that some people you know there was a gentleman in there he had a single lung transplant he was out in two weeks he was it, out moving around yeah. and I, you know i could see him walking around and you know i, I was I, at first i started to feel defeated because i was like well why can i move why can't i walk but like travis said every surgery is different every person is different so you just have to Take it, take your time, and go at your own pace. Yeah, there's there's so many factors and variables. Uh, as far as that goes, it's it's difficult to just say one transplant is the same for everybody because it's not. No. Everybody's going to be different. Uh, everybody's recovery time is going to be different. Everybody's not going to have to have ECMO or a trach, any of that stuff. Some people, you know, may just go through it and not have any issues at all. Um, Erica was just kind of the the exception to some of that you know she went in very very sick and very very sick yes a lot of people's i mean some people when they go in they aren't as sick as i was they they um you know i like i said before i was using 40 almost 50 liters of oxygen right before surgery and um you know it, it was really at that point a life or death thing for me um so, yeah, like Travis said, I was really sick. And so with me being so sick and deconditioned, mm. that's why I couldn't move after surgery. And I believe they said for every day you're in the bed is two days of recovery. Uh, I, I could be wrong, uh, but I do know that it, it was pretty significant because she was she was in the bed for roughly two months. And a lot of swelling on her legs. She had a lot of, a lot of fluid. Her feet were swollen, and they was, they was putting compression socks on, you know, just to try to keep the swelling down. But she had a lot of swelling on her. Uh, they were doing, you know, Lasix or the dire, you know, diuresis, and uh, to try to get that fluid off of her. And uh, but she had, she had a lot of fluid it on was her. The weirdest thing, just to see your legs, and. You know, see your legs, and you, your brain thinks, oh, you can walk. I mean, why are you not walking? Like, so it's it kept telling me I could walk, but when I would try, I couldn't move my legs. I couldn't. It was like they weren't communicating yeah. or something. It it was just it was. She strange. was just very very weak in her legs. Um, and then, um, but now. I was use, previously I was using a walker as well, but now I'm walking by myself. So, um, you know, that's that's what we're trying to tell you. I mean, these things don't last forever. Um, you'll get through them, but you get through them at your own pace. Um, I'm still working on weaning off my oxygen. My doctors, they're telling me I don't necessarily need my oxygen. However, um, I've been on, excuse me, <coughs> I've been on oxygen for eight years. So after you're on oxygen for eight years, I mean, it, it became a part of me. So without it, I feel anxious. I feel just really nervous. And so, yeah, I do have these beautiful new lungs, but it's still scary to be away from my oxygen 
and not have it on because uh, I'm I worry what if this what if that so that's just a mind thing that I'm going to have to work on and and get myself through uh, because I do want to get back to of course walking without anything that's that's the goal um, so you know it, it's it's baby steps um, another thing um, they were taking so much blood from her to do labs I think it was every four hours roughly every four hours they was taking um, blood for labs that it got to the point where they had to give her two pints of blood this was this was after right after surgery or this or? was uh during the time that he was at the oh, Vanderbilt. Oh yeah, during the yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and they had a they ended up having to give you I believe two pints of blood just to replenish some of the blood that you lost from the uh, the labs, and uh, which I I couldn't believe that. I mean, I didn't realize I was taking that much blood initially, but every day kind of runs together. You know, I spent every day yes. with you in the hospital. And uh, every day just kind of run together, but uh, the nurses, they would discuss with me what was going on. They would explain to me some of the equipment and uh, as far as how he was improving, you know, what was the game plan for the day. They annotated it on the board like this is the goal for the day and doesn't mean necessarily mean it happened, but that was the intent, you know, to try to get you to a certain point yeah. that day. And there were setbacks, but at the you know overall you end up coming coming out on top yeah and uh and like i said just a minute ago you know now i'm walking on my own um and you know i'm, I'm not just walking like small like small um no you walked in the you walked I'm in the hospital the far. other day by yourself yeah um and now we'll say medications that's been that's been a that's, that's been tough. That's been a battle. Um, there is so many of them. Um, I take anywhere from twenty to twenty-five pills a day, but that's just something you get used to as time goes on. Then it just becomes second nature. But I'd be lying to say um, living off of tons of medicines is easy because it's not. Um, you know, there's so many side effects. Um, I just know it's it's what I have to do to live. And when you think of it that way, it makes them easier to digest now some of those medications will will go away they're just after transplant that you have to have them up to about three to four months some of them is six months roughly and you do have to get a bronchoscopy at one month or, or at least Vanderbilt's policy is one month two months three months and then after three months you get one at six month mark nine month mark and then 12 month mark and I believe after that it's every year or as needed mm -hmm. uh, for the bronchoscopies, and that's a, that's another thing, you know, because you're a little sore after the bronchs, yes. um, you know, for a couple of days because they do take biopsies of the the lung tissue uh, to make sure there's no rejection, which is a good thing, and you do have to document your your FEV one, FEV six, FEVC, F or FVC, FEV. I thought it was FEV one, FEV six. I, I, I'm, I don't know. I, I can mess this up. I don't want to confuse anybody. But and you monitor your blood pressure twice a day, stuff like this. Uh, but they give you a list of everything to check. And this way you can monitor your own um, lungs and body 
this to see if you're having any early onset rejection that they may not see quite yet and it's it's an early identif it's an early marker uh for being able to catch the rejection yeah um and i i want to point out that transplant it okay transplant was for me but just because it was for me doesn't mean it's for you transplant is not for everyone um the goal of this podcast tonight is just to educate you on what happened during my podcast but you have to in our experiences in our experiences yes but you have to make that decision for you uh whether that's something that you feel like is for you everyone's different i made my decision by praying to God and asking Him to help guide me to make the decision for myself. Then it became clear to me. I felt in my heart, if I didn't have the transplant, I wouldn't be here today. And I wanted to be here with my husband and to see my nephew graduate from high school and to be around for my dad and my sister and the rest of my family and friends. So after really putting thought into what was best for me and praying, I came to the decision uh, or to my decision um, to be transplanted. Um, do you have anything else, Travis? You um, add? Nothing that I can think of quite. Um, it, it is a process. It is something that you can know all the information going into it, but until you go through it, you, it's just it's different. You it know, is. it's it's an experience. Um, it's amazing that. She's got this transplant, and she's through it, but it's nothing I would ever want to have to go through again. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. It is a long process. It's a toll. It took a toll on me. I mean, sitting there, watching her uh, go through this, you know, not being responsive. They Now, they did wake her up every periodically to, you know, make sure she uh, was able to communicate. They would, they would wake you up uh, every so often bring you out of the you know sedation and uh, make sure you could wiggle your fingers and your toes and then put you back under just to make you comfortable mm-hmm. but it is it is a lot it's a lot on your your uh, care partners or your husband or whoever's going to be there for you or your spouse I say husband because of me but for your spouse or whatever but you know it's it's tough and you need to have a great support system yes. uh you need to have people that are going to be able to be there and uh just you know and be there to support you and be there to support the the individual going through this transplant um uh, it's it's been a lot i know there was something else i was going to say uh, i can't quite remember yet but well i just hope that my story gave you some insight on lung transplant and if you have any questions uh, after please feel free to email me at the silent battle 2022 at gmail.com if you don't have anything else then um you know we'll go ahead and close no i don't have anything else i'm sure i'll probably think of something later but i don't have anything right now <laughs> well uh, again if you have any questions, let let us let me know, and I'll, I'll be glad to do my best to answer anything for you. And remember, again, I always say this: life is tough, but so are you. Everyone, have a great night. If if you do have questions, 
uh, for me as well. She can relay those to me, and uh, I'll be happy to answer anything that she's unable to answer. Yeah, because, I mean, um, you may have questions from a spouse perspective. Yeah, that he, exactly. He can answer for you that mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I don't know. So, um, yeah, please. Um, yeah. If you have questions for Travis. Feel free. Yeah, please. All right, everyone. Have a great night.